You'll see our reading comes from Romans, uh, chapter 7, 14 to 25, verses 14 to 25. So Romans seven fourteen. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am, am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin, it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Thanks, Richard. Uh, you almost need a round of applause for that tongue twister, but thank you. Uh, great, uh, great to be here today, everyone. I'm, uh, I'm Liam, the other pastor, uh, and it is, uh, you might not believe me, but it is a pleasure to preach on this passage today and to have worked through it. Uh, and I'll just make sure we're good to go. Um, as, we, as we generally do, we will have a question time immediately after the sermon. Um, so if you've got a burning question, you don't have to shout it out right there and then. Uh, we'll have a crack at answering it. No, uh, no uh, promises about whether, whether you're happy with the answer, but we'll, we'll have a crack afterwards. Uh, and thanks for praying for us, uh, Julie, as we kicked off there too. Uh, now, if you come across uh, the phrase that sort of pops up on... Uh, I guess, social media and modern culture. The phrase, the struggle is real. Have you come across that one? Uh, it's usually attached to kind of a uh, often funny or uh, simple uh, little image like this one. This one I like. Struggle is real. Uh, poor T-Rex with his short forearms, can't pick up his burger. You know, it's just that, ah, oh, there's things in life and it's just so hard. What can you do? Uh, this one might be more relatable, especially if you've got young children. I'll read it out. Um, so mummy duck's on the toilet. Uh, kids are saying, I'm bored, I'm hungry. And mum's saying, I'm pooping. You know, and it's, the struggle is real. Oh, you never get a break from these little kids. Uh, you know, so it's that, that, that kind of idea of uh, life is hard sometimes. Uh, there are things in life uh, that, that make life a bit of a struggle. Uh, and as we open Romans uh, 7... Uh, we see that the, the Christian life, when it comes to the Christian life, Paul describes this struggle. And he's kind of saying, okay, guys, the struggle is real. 
You're not imagining it. It's not just you. The struggle is real. Uh, The struggle of desperately not wanting to fail, but failing again and again. I want to kick off today by telling you about three different Christians who who found themselves in a place of utter hopelessness, but for three quite different reasons. Uh, the first, uh, the first Christian was converted at Oxford University, uh, and uh, was heard a sermon, uh, amongst other things, and he said, "The scales fell from my eyes. I, I saw the way in." Uh, he was thoroughly converted and enthralled by the good news of forgiveness in Jesus. But soon in his life came a crisis because he came under the preaching of, a, I guess, a type of preaching called perfectionism that, that picks up passages like Romans 7 and says to Christians that there's a possibility as a Christian for this second experience called sanctification by faith, by which they mean that you won't experience the kind of crisis that Paul describes in Romans 7, that you become a Christian and Jesus changes your heart and empowers you to defeat sin. And that's, that's what the Christian life is. And for this Christian, that, that led into utter hopelessness, right to the point of nearly suiciding. Because he, he describes himself as having a very sensitive conscience and, and being unable to deceive himself. And, and he knew with on a sh- beyond a shadow of a doubt he wasn't perfect and could never be perfect. And when told you can be perfect, you should be perfect, Jesus empowers you to defeat sin, he was left feeling hopeless. Well, I can't do that. I can't do that. Uh, the second Christian, uh, maybe a bit more of a slower burn, become a Christian, find faith in Jesus, the joy of new life, uh, and then trying to just get rid of sins and some success in some areas, but, but in maybe one or two particular areas, trying and trying and trying over 5, 10, 15, 20 years and unable to eradicate this sin from their life. They're never expecting to be perfect, but this sin just isn't going away. And they open up Romans 7 and they read it and they say, ugh. Is it, is it never going away? Is this, is this my life? Just fighting and failing and they feel depressed. And basically getting to a point of giving up on fighting with this sin anymore. Say, so, well, if I'm never going to be, beat it. And I, I know, I feel like I'm not. I'm never going to beat it. So why go through the anguish of fighting? Of struggling against it, knowing I will just fail and Kind of saying, okay, it's there in my life, I'll just, I'll just deal with it. And the third Christian, saved, loves Jesus. But there's a lot going on in life. Life's pretty chaotic. And they find themselves always on the edge of feeling like everyone else is going to see just how chaotic my life is. They arrive at church in a bit of a stress, a bit of anxiety thinking, is today the day everything's going to fall apart and they'll see what I'm really like? At home group, when it comes to sharing uh, prayer points, uh, they know, know what they want to share, the deep sins and struggles they're wrestling with, but 
Everyone else looks like they've got life together. I can't share this. So when it comes to their turn, they pray for the missionaries or a family member. Good things to pray for, but neatly deflecting away from what's really going on. Now, these aren't unique Christians. In fact, these experiences are quite common across the Christian life. It may be, in fact, how you're feeling this afternoon. Or maybe you're not even sure if you're actually in Jesus' family yet. But, but one of those descriptions resonated. But the thing that got all of these different people, these different Christians, to the same point of hopelessness is the experience in life of being regenerate or being saved, having salvation and a new identity in Christ, experiencing Jesus' forgiveness, but still living in the reality of this world where they keep failing the God they now love. And Paul wrote this part of Romans 7 not to add to our hopelessness. He didn't write it to, to beat us further down, but quite the opposite, to help, to give hope, to deliver us and give us a way forward. Now, as Richard was reading that, you might not have heard the hope, uh, but it is there, uh, and we're going to work through that, and I hope you're going to see it as we go. So as we open Romans 7 uh, today, we're going to see sort of five different points uh, and we'll whiz through them. The first point is that rules can't... Well, we'll see what rules can't do. There's a whole bunch of things that law or rules just, just can't do in our life. We're going to see that the fight does continue, but crucially, we, we can't quit. We mustn't quit fighting. We're going to see what weapons we need to keep fighting to survive in this life. And we're going to finish by keeping our eyes on the prize. But before we jump into all that, there is a small disagreement about this passage in the Christian world. Uh, you don't have to worry too much about it, uh, but there is some kind of arguments going on there at a kind of academic level uh, about who this passage is describing. And the two basic arguments are these. Uh, some people reckon this is Paul describing his own experience before his conversion. So he's saying, this is what my life was like before I found Jesus, but now I find Jesus, it's all different. Uh, everything's changed. Uh, others think that Paul is describing a part of his Christian experience. And that's where I land. Uh, I won't go into all the reasons, but I'm going to put a link to a little podcast in tomorrow's email if you'd like to listen to it. I'll put a link for a 10-minute thing and a link to about five hours of content if you'd really like to dig into it. Uh, but uh, that's where I land. But really quickly, we're just going to flick over to Galatians 5 because it... I think this quite helps us understand that this is Paul describing his Christian experience. Uh, and Galatians really parallels this whole chunk of Romans, so it's no surprise that most weeks in this chunk of Romans we're going to see parallels with Galatians. But Galatians 5 verse 16, Paul writes to the people in uh, Galatia, the Christians, so he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Uh, for the flesh... Uh, desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh they are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want now no one argues about this passage well people argue about it but everybody agrees that this is describing the Christian experience in Galatians that there is a war going on internally within the lives of Christians between the desires of the flesh our sinful desires and the desires of the spirit so that's that's enough about that I reckon this is cl super clear that it's 
the Christian experience in Romans 7 because it's exactly the same language. The, the desires, the battle, the flesh and the law, you'll see, you'll see it as we step through. Uh, now, this is not a salvation issue, so if you disagree with me on it, no worries. Uh, you can still be a Christian uh, and believe either side of this, but I think this makes a huge difference to how we cope with life in this world as a Christian. A huge difference. Um, so let me pray again as we, we carry on through. Father God, we thank you and praise you uh, that you want to be known. You're a God of clarity. You're not a God of confusion. Uh, that you, you don't push us down, but you seek to encourage us and draw us to yourself. And I pray as I speak today uh, that you would help me to speak with your clarity, me to say your words. I pray that you'd protect me uh, from, from misleading or not being clear uh, and lead me into truth as I speak. And I pray that we would all hear your words as we open up Romans 7 today. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, what rules can't do. Uh, See, so the big issue in all this is the question, uh, after you've become a Christian, what do you do with rules? See, so as we saw last week, and really the whole first six chapters of Romans, make it really clear, keeping rules can't save you. That's, it's a bit of a summary of the whole of Romans. If you want to become a Christian, if you want to get right with God by keeping rules, good luck to you. Because even the best rules, that is God's law, even the best rules can't save. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the rules in themselves. The Old Testament, it's beautiful. They're good rules. They're godly. There's nothing wrong with the rules themselves. God's law is good. But when we humans come across rules, uh, they don't make us better. But they show us how bad we are. They stir up the sin that's already in there and show that sin is really sinful. So, so we kind of get that. If you've been with us, hopefully you get that. Rules can't save you. You can't get right with God by being good, by following rules. We just can never be good enough. So we say, okay, okay, we, we get that. We can't be good enough for God. So the Old Testament law or any rules, in fact, have nothing to do with becoming a Christian. Becoming a Christian is all by grace. And that grace word, undeserved generosity. That's how you come into God's family, as a free gift being forgiven, not because we kept rules, but because God forgives us. So if you're a Christian, becoming a Christian, you're not under the law at all. But what about after that? You, you've come into Jesus' family by grace alone, you've been forgiven, it's not about rules, but now you become a Christian, you say, well, I want to follow Jesus. How do I become more like Jesus? We don't get saved by following rules, but what about now? See, some would say that rules are the solution to being godly. Once you're saved, the way you get people to be good, to become like Jesus, is to put them back under the law. You want people to do something? Give them a rule. And Paul says, well, let's test that. Let's test that and see if that is true. And before we see how it feels for Paul to go through life as a Christian, let's have a look at his summary statement there in verse 21 of 7. It'll be on the screen there. Here's his summary statement. So, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Now, uh, if you're feeling a little bit confused about all the law in there, you might, uh, you're not alone. Um, 
Uh, it's sort of you think, come on, Paul, this isn't a competition to see how many different ways you can use the word law in one sentence. Uh, but he does use the word law in three distinct ways in this pass, in this little chunk, just in those verses. And, and to help us understand his argument, we'll have a look at those first. Uh, the first way he uses the word law is that, that first sentence there. So I find this law at work. Well, what law? Well, he's saying, I find this is my experience. This is the rule of life. This is the, the rule of human experience, the law. It might be a way of saying, I find this reality at work in, in life. It's a reality. You can't escape it, like a law. And, and the reality is that there is a clash. So he's describing the situation of being a human, and there's a reality or a law at work within him. And, and what's the clash between, we might ask? Well, uh, God's law, uh, th that is the good truth that God speaks to us, his instructions. Uh, he describes that in another way as the law of my mind. So it seems that God's law and the law of my mind are being paralleled. They're the things that in his head and his heart, as a Christian, he says, I hear what God says to me. I understand what God says to me. And I like it. I, it's good. I hear it and my heart goes, yes, that is good. I hear it and my mind goes, yeah, that's what I want to do. And if that was the end of it, well... There'd be no more Romans 7, wouldn't it? It'd be easy. But that's not the end of it because there is another opponent, another law at work. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing. But he says the third one, there's another law. There's head, heart uh, aligned with God's law. But there's another law in my flesh and it's the law of sin. Uh, and that's what he says. It's this parallel with, with flesh or being unspiritual in this passage. Unspiritual is just the word for fleshly. Um, so the law of sin, that is in my sinful nature. There's these two warring things going on with me. And we do see it again there in verse 22, um, that he says this. he's describing the Christian experience. He's already had this inner transformation. He's talking about there's something that's happened in his inner being. That means he delights in God's law. That's a regenerate statement. Uh, and so that's, that comes from being a Christian. So that's his summary. And his summary of the experience is, we find this law, we find it working with me as a Christian, my experience, an inner battle. That's what he says. If, if you're a Christian, the law or the reality of the Christian's experience is there'll be an inner battle going on. And it's, it's, it's obvious when you think about it, because a big part of you has changed. Uh, you've had a new heart from Jesus put in you, uh, a new mind uh, that being transformed inside of you. That's from God. This is fantastic. I now have good and godly desires and tastes because I've been saved. I have a new father, a new family. I'm being transformed in my mind and my heart. At his deepest desire, Paul says, he says, right down deep, below what I actually do, there's this deep desire that says, ah, oh, I want to do good. I want to do good. Even underneath the actually not doing good, he says, oh, deep down I just long to do what is right. But this new mind and this new heart, they're not alone within Paul. Within his body, there is an opponent. And every step at which he wants to do good, he's confronted by his natural sin sinfulness. 
Uh, actually, down in verse 18, well, it's a little bit up, he says this about his natural sinfulness, his humanity. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. He says, oh, if, if I examine myself really, really soberly, clearly, not through rose-tinted glasses, oh, good doesn't dwell in my sinful nature. That is who I am apart from Christ. There's nothing good in me. There's nothing good in me. He said in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual. God's instructions are spiritual, but I am unspiritual. That's that word flesh. I am fleshly. Naturally, I'm not of the spirit. I'm not of God. I'm of the flesh. And so, Paul says, even though I want to do good, I want to become like Jesus, rules can't fix me. Because any rule that comes in is met with my flesh. And even though I want to follow it, if it's from God, I'm going, God, this is good. You show me how to live. This is righteous. I can see, I can taste that it's good for me. But I got this flesh. And, and I, can't get, I can't get good by following rules. I've still got this sinful nature. When those rules come into a Christian life, to someone who desperately wants to honour God, but they're still in this sinful body, well, Here's how Paul feels when he goes through that, uh, that situation. And I think, uh, I don't have it up there on the screen, but I'll read from verse 15 down to 20. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good as it is. It's no longer myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do. But that evil that I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Do you feel his anguish? I just can't get it right. And it's not that I don't want to live God's way. I desperately want to, but I just can't. It should be simple to do what I want. You would think that would be simple, wouldn't you? Yeah, this is good. That should be easy, but it's not. Even the experience of doing what he doesn't want to do seems to confirm that he doesn't want to do it. In verse 16, there's that funny little phrase, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. What's going on there? Well, I wonder if you've had that experience post-sin. So, sorry to take you there, but we've we got to remember this. Think of a recent time where you have sinned, where you have failed. Maybe in something that you just keep coming back to. Was it the harsh word that you oh, just want to scoop back in? Was it in lust or anger? selfishness or gossip or greed you've just done it and in that aftermath you feel i agree that the law is good it's i've heard it described as a little bit like post kfc you've got fat running down your elbows from the chicken 
that you really wanted when you saw the sign because you were hungry, but I shouldn't have gone there. But so much worse when it's something deep that you won't want to do, something spiritual. I agree that God's law is good. His instructions are good. And I know they're good because I just didn't do it. And I can feel that that's not good. Why did I go there again? And there's that other phrase in verse 20, you know, now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. He's, he's sort of expressing this confusion. Why do I keep doing this? I hate this. I don't want to go there. I don't want to say that. I don't want to feel that. I don't want to think that. I don't want to do that. Why do I keep doing that? He says, ah, oh, I've, I've got this heart that doesn't want it, but there's this sin living in me, my flesh that does it. Almost an out-of-body experience. Not to, not to excuse it, but just to describe that this isn't, this isn't truly who I am now. I'm in Christ now. Why do I keep doing this? It's not who I am. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying rules can't get us into God's family. We can't follow them. And then after conversion, after forgiveness, rules can't make you good. Rules can't make you good, not because the rules are bad, but because we are bad. Just getting better rules can't make us good. The law can't do it because we still have these bodies of flesh. We still have this sinful nature, which takes us to that second point. And don't worry, the other points are shorter. Uh, The second point is that the fight continues. That is the fight with sin. See, expecting for perfection in this life, expecting freedom from sin is just not a Christian expectation. And it's not just in this passage. It's all over the New Testament. Uh, In the letter of John, uh, 1 John, uh, the Apostle John writes this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in it. He's writing to Christians and including himself an apostle of the gospel of Jesus. If we claim to be without sin, you're lying to yourself and you are a liar. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins. Purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim, he says it again, if we claim not to have sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. See, expecting that all Christians will have life mostly together. Just, just That's not the picture the Bible gives. That, that you're going to have life sorted. And, and when we carry that expectation into a Christian community or into our own lives, it, it often will lead us to hypocrisy. Because we feel like, okay, the expectation is we'll have it together. I want to look like I've got it together. Therefore, I have to pretend that I've got it together. That's the definition of hypocrisy, presenting something that is not true. We just try and get it enough together that everyone else thinks we're okay. And it's unbiblical. And it leads us either to depression, trying to be perfect but not able to do it, or hypocrisy, just being condemning and a hypocrite. Either way, it leads to exhaustion and fatigue. But Paul doesn't want us to give up. Instead, he pleads with us, don't quit fighting. 
See, for some of us, uh, hearing Romans 7 and Paul describe the struggle with sin will tempt us to think, why bother? And and I get that. I've felt that. I feel that. If I can't be free from sin, if if I can't kick it out of my life, why go through all that energy of trying to kick it out? If I'm still going to be in this body of flesh of death, why fight? Just make peace with it. But, but is that the tone we get from Paul in this passage? See, the mark of being genuinely converted, of being a Christian, is not that we don't sin, but what we sound like when we do sin. The mark of whether you're a genuine Christian or not is not that you don't sin, but how your heart and your head and your mouth responds when we do sin. Read carefully. Uh, from verse 21, I find this law at work. Although I, do, I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Ugh, but I see another law at work in with me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ our Lord so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin now it can feel hopeless It can feel hopeless to admit to ourselves, I will not be sin-free in this life. But when we start to think, should I give up? Paul sort of shouts, no, don't just give up. How do we respond? How How should we sound and feel when we do sin? Well, I think we should start by sounding like, God, your law is good. The mark of a genuine Christian is that when we do sin, we go, oh, You were right, God. Your law is beautiful. Your your instructions are good. Not, ugh, if only I wasn't a Christian, I could do that thing. That is a dangerous attitude. If when we sin, we go, ugh, man, I wish I wasn't a Christian, then I could do this. That's dangerous. But to feel when we sin that the law is good because we feel so dirty, that's, that's good. That's the mark. God, your instructions are pure and just and good for me. Then we should feel devastated, wretched, and move through that into hope, that cry out, who will save me from this body of death? We have a saviour, and we will come back to that. But I think the key at this point is to keep getting up. The, The Christian response to sin by not settling with sin keeps fighting in another letter paul writes to the church in corinth and we get an insight into what he does in his life Uh, in 1 corinthians 9 he writes i discipline my body to keep it under control lest after preaching to others i myself should be disqualified this is the same man who wrote romans 7 i discipline my body I, i don't give up i keep on fighting i keep on training because I don't want to abandon myself to giving up in this fight. Don't quit, he writes. Don't quit. Don't settle in. 
A helpful illustration, I've heard it somewhere for me, is kind of like the Israelites in the promised land. When they came into the land God had given them, full of Canaanites, full of ungodly people, who, who, who slaughtered children, indulged in pagan sacrifices, horrendously immoral. And, and they drove most of them out. They, they, they conquered most of the land. But then there were pockets that they failed to drive them out of. They fought for a while, but the losses were too high. It was just too hard to drive them out of the hill country. So they changed their mindset and went, you know what? We've, we've got 90% of the land. They've only got 10%. Well, you know what? Why keep fighting? Let's just let them have that 10%. We'll, we'll, we'll be happy with our 90 I can do that in my life. You know what? I've overcome a whole bunch of stuff. That's good. But that little pocket of resistance, of sin that I can't overcome, you know what? I'm, I might just, I'm sick of fighting that. I'll, I'll just let sin keep that little corner of my life. Maybe a big slab of my life. Don't do that. Don't quit, Paul says. So how? How do we keep on fighting? Well, well, Paul shows us that we've got to use our weapons in this fight. And there's a huge number of weapons. I think the, the first weapon in the fight against sin uh, in, uh, for the Christian uh, from Romans 7 is that we aren't to overestimate our ability. If Romans 7 does nothing else for it, let it do this. Do not walk out of here thinking you can resist sin by your own power. Doesn't this passage do it for us? If you have the opportunity to sin, you, you may well do it. Don't trust yourself. You are still in this body of death, in this fleshly body. You've got indwelling sin, and we will have indwelling sin for the remainder of this life. Don't think of ourselves, Paul writes elsewhere, more highly than we ought, but assess ourselves with sober judgments. Be wise about your flesh. Know that you're susceptible to temptations. If, if, I'm a, if I'm a sucker for a Big Mac, I probably shouldn't go hanging around McDonald's. Why would I do that if I'm feeling tempted, if I know I'm likely to give in? Just don't go there. Know yourself. Know yourself. Be wise. The next one came up in home group, and I, I just want to share it because it was really encouraging. It's to do it together. Good luck fighting this battle on your own. In the book of James, or the letter of James, the apostle writes that we should confess our sins to one another. Not just to God, but to one another. Because then we can pray for one another. Then we can support one another. Then we can encourage one another. We can speak God's forgiveness to one another. We can hold one another to account. Use the community that God's given us. And the big one, and it doesn't so much come out of Romans 7, except that Romans 7 talks about this being a war, a battle within us. In the letter to the Ephesians, uh, Paul talks about this battle, about this war, and he extends the analogy. I'll read it from Ephesians chapter 6. It's there on the screen. Finally, he writes, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, 
put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, Paul writes, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Now, we're not going to dig through all of those, but go read Ephesians uh, 6 again. But prayer is a big one, isn't it? Because when we come to God, when, if, if you've become a Christian, it's easy to forget we've come into a relationship. We've come into a relationship. And when we sin, we have hurt, most of all, our Father. We have sinned against, most of all, the one in whom we're a relationship with. And we know that in our human relationships, that the, the longer we leave it before apologising, before recognising that hurt, the deeper the wound gets, the harder it is to heal, the more damage it does. Pray. At all times in the Spirit. Not just after we've sinned. Do that though. Quickly, repent, talk to God. But before we sin, when we're feeling tempted, even when we're not feeling tempted, but we know we will be, Pray for strength. God promises to give us strength. Jesus, that was his last words to the apostles, wasn't it? And I will be with you always, right till the end of the age. I'll, I'll be there. Ask, pray. And the other big one that comes up again and again and again through this armour and the sword is the word. You see it there, the belt of truth. What's the truth? Well, it's Jesus' word is the truth. Uh, you work through it, the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Back in Romans 7, do you remember the battle lines that Paul drew, the two opponents? On one side, the flesh, our sinful nature, our impurity, and on the other side, our inner being, the law of our mind. This is a conscious thing, an emotional thing, a mind which delights in what? God's law, his word, his instructions. See, Satan would love to see you abandon your faith. That's why he writes in Ephesians. We're not fighting against human things, but against spiritual things. Satan would love to see you abandon your faith, abandon what you deeply know to be true and worthy for a few fleeting fleshly pleasures. Satan has already got our flesh working for him. Don't give him your mind as well. That's the battle lines. He's got your flesh, your sinful desires, your indwelling sin. Don't give him your mind as well. We live in a world that is so saturated. Our minds, our brains, our hearts are getting things that aren't from God all the time. And that can overwhelm us. Over time, we get desensitized to sin. 
You might have noticed it. There's, there's very rarely movies now that come out that, that don't have a whole range of sin. It's, it's normalising uh, ungodly behaviours and attitudes. And that desensitises our minds to that. We've got to resensitise our mind. I don't know if that's a word, but it should be. Uh, we, we've got to resensitise our mind. Get rid of the calluses that form on our heart and mind to sin. Uh, and, and I guess to soften those calluses is to get into the Word of God. That's how you soften them. You, you, you moisturise with something. You soak it in something to soften it. That's how we'll resensitize. But it's tough, isn't it? None of this is simple. None of this is easy to keep fighting when you know there's going to be defeats. How do you keep doing that? Well, that's why Paul lands us with the need to keep our eyes on the prize. That's how he ends this little chunk. After his, after his wretchedness, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. As I was uh, listening to different things and reading different things, I came across this quote from John Piper and I found it tremendously helpful. The evidence of being a Christian is not that there are no tactical defeats in the war, but that you keep fighting until the promised victory is given. If you find yourself wondering, ugh, a real Christian wouldn't still be struggling with this sin. If I was really following Jesus, I'd be over this by now. No. Read Romans 7, read the New Testament, just open your Bible and read something and you'll find that's not how it works. The real evidence of genuine faith, it's not that there's tactical defeats, but you keep fighting. You get back up and keep fighting until the promised victory is given because there is a victory that was won at the cross historically. Jesus paid for our sins and he rose from the dead to prove it. That is the first fruits, the guarantee that we too will be delivered from these bodies that are subject to death. What's the prize? We see it there in Revelation amongst other places. No longer will there be any curse. That might stop there. You can read the rest of that later. No longer will the curse of sin be evident. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, I really hope that Romans 7 drives you to Jesus. Because there is no prize if you don't have hope in Jesus. Romans 7, up to the hope in Jesus, is all that there is if you don't find hope in him. I'd love to talk and pray with you if that's where you're at. But if you're a Christian, victory has been won and we will taste it on the day when Jesus returns or we go to be with him in glory. Let that hope drive you forward. It really is a wartime mentality. We know the outcome. Victory's already won. Deliverance is sure. So where do you find yourself in the struggle? There's the kind of three people I described to start with. Are you finding yourself burdened by the obligation of perfection, knowing you'll never get there and feeling hopeless? 
That guy was actually J.I. Packer, who wrote Concise Theology, converted in 1946 at Oxford University, nearly committed suicide before being delivered by that, from that, by Romans 7, through the works of John Owen. Maybe you know you'll never be perfect, you don't feel that expectation, but you just can't deal with the hopelessness of the idea of never kicking all your sin. Maybe you've given up. Or maybe like many of us, you're exhausted, trying to, trying to keep up looking like we've got it together. Wherever we are, Romans 7 gives us hope. We need to have proper expectations. We need to not quit fighting. The day we put down our sword and concede that territory to sin, that's a worrying day. Don't go there. Confess that. Turn away from that. And in the midst of our exhaustion and keeping up appearances, to instead let your guard down. I know there's places you can't and shouldn't let your guard down. That's okay. But in ones and twos, in home groups, we don't have to be perfect. Why do we need to pretend that we've got it all together? And for all of us, that hope that Romans 7 gives, the hope of the new creation, we're already free from the penalty of sin. If you're a Christian, you are free from the penalty of sin. You will never suffer penalty for sin. Jesus took that for you. If you're a Christian, you're increasingly free from the power of sin. And you'll have seen victories in your life that you never thought you could overcome. And one day, we'll be free from the, the presence of sin. There will be no curse. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much that by your Apostle Paul, you speak these words to us. Words of comfort and reality. Words of hope in a world that feels so hopeless. And we pray that wherever we are today, that you will be reaching out to us in comforting and hope. We pray that you'll comfort us when we feel like we should believe the devil's lies that a real Christian wouldn't be like this. Take us to the cross. Give us confidence and security in what your son Jesus did for us. On those days when we feel like giving up, maybe we already have in some area of our life, when we feel like conceding an area of sin to the enemy, show us the danger of that, that error. Convict us and help us. And lead us to someone we trust to confess that to, to keep accountable with, to be encouraged by. And help us to keep fighting. And we pray that in the face of exhaustion, from keeping up appearances, you'll free us from the sin of hypocrisy, of feeling like we have to be all that. But in our security in you and what you've done for us, we pray that you would give us safe people to be open with, who will call us to account and love us deeply, who will speak your forgiveness to us and point us back to Jesus, our hope and our life. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Questions? I'm going to put my phone off silent so that I can't do that. I'll get you a mic, Mal. You can run around. It's a figure of speech.
So he'll wheel it to you. There you go. Who's got a question? Oh, good. Thanks, Anna. I'll hear you and repeat it for the recording. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Anna. So um, if I've heard you rightly, you're saying uh, my comment that Satan has our flesh, um, but, oh, hang on, when I read the Bible, Anna, when you read the Bible, you think, oh, no, Jesus redeemed us completely at the cross. The cross he has all of us. How can, how can Satan have our flesh while still recognising that we still struggle with sin? Is that, that, that your, your... Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. And uh, I may well have not chosen those words as well as I might. Uh, so what, what I'm picking up there is that, that phrase really right at the end, Romans 7.25, um, where Paul's recognising that we're still living in this tension. So we, we're yet to have a time where we're free from this, this body and this indwelling sin. So I'll read it again, Romans 7.25. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Um, and, so, and that's the, the same, whereas he says in verse 18, I think is the other one. Uh, for me. Uh, is it 18? Yeah, for I know that good itself does not dwell within me. That is in my sinful nature. So Paul seems to be seeing two kind of distinct natures within himself, uh, this divided man. Um, and so to say that belongs to Satan, uh, that wasn't the words Paul used. Maybe I shouldn't have used those words but it is in bondage to sin still. So I might say, sin has our flesh. The sinful nature has our flesh. Yes. So, but still, and we won't be free from this in, in life. So, it, so we've got to be careful of not jumping to a perfectionism. It's not just a, a will. Uh, but, and, and this isn't say this will be the dominant experience. Um, Jesus will give us victories and help us to grow and increasingly repent. That's a great promise. Yeah. Yep. Therefore, there's no condemnation. Yeah, so that's that. It's not therefore there is no sin. Therefore, there's no condemnation. Doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't matter. But it, it, when, our salvation doesn't depend on when we last sinned. Uh, no, there, there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. Great hope. Thanks, Anna. Yeah. I reckon we should sing. <laughs>